Well, good morning and happy new year. That was pretty weak. Y'all need to wake up. You need to repent. Staying up too late last night. I got to admit, man, I was really disappointed with Rock Hill's New Year celebration last night. And that's because all of the fire, fireworks and firearms were expended celebrating the Clemson win. There was nothing to celebrate when the, the clock struck 12. So um, I tell you, <clears throat> we had uh, guests in town that left this morning. And uh, there was enough ammunition expended last night celebrating the Clemson win that this war on terror would be over if we would just send all these Clemson rednecks to the Middle East. It was incredible. I'm like, what just shook my house? My entire house shook. So uh, <clears throat> that was fun. And all you um, USC fans, God bless your heart. You know, we love you too. But uh, I think we've got some people that might be traveling for a game next week. So we need to, we need to pray for them. Pray for them. Well, it is 2017. Does that sound just a little odd to anybody? Listen, there are people in the room, uh, not Andrew Shea, but um, I'll call him out because he walked in late, so I got him. Uh, Not Andrew, but we'll remember Y2K. Reed was like two years old. Um, So uh, my father-in-law bought me about 50 gallons of bottled water because he was absolutely convinced that all of our computers were going to fail. And doesn't it seem like it was not long ago, you know? It took me about five years to drink all the water, but um, I was glad to have been prepared in case something uh, did happen. And so <clears throat> this morning, you'll see that we're, we're back in Matthew. And my, my wife has accused me of having um, Matthew withdrawal. And so we finished the Great Commission, chapter 28, two weeks ago. But as I was thinking about um, the start of a new year and kind of wrapping up, putting some finishing touches on Matthew, um, I'm not really a resolution guy because I don't... January is not the only time that we need to be thinking about ways to improve our life. And so resolutions are a good thing. I just don't... Like, what if I think about something next week that's really good? Do I have to wait till next New Year's to do anything about it? I think we need to constantly be in this this process. So this morning, I, I want something for you. Um, that I think is also something for God. And I I want you to think very carefully, even if it's just for today, uh, for the next few minutes, about how 2017 will be new, because there is something new about you. If you don't think about your walk with Christ, and you don't think about your quiet time or your devotional life, and you don't make any changes... 2017 will be just like 2016. And my fear is for a lot of us, that's not going to be a really good thing. If you don't think about your gospel witness and what you're going to do differently in 2017, you won't really do a whole lot more than what you did in 2016. And I can guarantee on that issue, we all have plenty of room for improvement. And so this morning, I don't say anything to guilt you. It's the start of a new year. Some of you are thinking about losing weight for at least 24 hours. Um, <laughs> some of you are thinking about how you're going to manage your time better for at least a week. Um, you're, you're thinking of these kinds of things. And so as a way to kind of blend two things together, to talk about um, looking at 2017, looking forward, but also looking back at Matthew's gospel, there's something really fun uh, that I think happens. And it's this. When Jesus has been preaching to us through Matthew's gospel, there have been five sermons that he has preached throughout Matthew's gospel. We're going to look at all five of them 
in machine gun fashion, blah, 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 just kind of zoom through them. But each sermon has a theme that it's dealing with that oddly enough, I think each one of those five themes is a challenge for us as we think about faithfulness to Christ in 2017. He deals with this theme of the kingdom. And uh, when we hear the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, I think we have kind of ingrained into our mind this idea of what it will be like to be with Jesus in the sweet by and by when we experience the kingdom. And we tend to, excuse me, put this idea of the kingdom completely future. Like that's what will happen because the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that's the kingdom. The truth is, if you look very closely at Jesus' preaching on the kingdom, the kingdom is now. It's also not yet, but it is now. And so kind of the best illustration that I can use to kind of think about this is um, World War II was won on June 6th at the uh, storming of the beaches of Normandy. Now, the war went on for a while, but the invasion that happened in Normandy on June 6th was the ultimate battle that led to the downfall. Now, it was a long time before uh, Victory in Europe Day was actually celebrated, but what happened with the beachhead in Normandy was uh, determined the rest of the course of what happened in World War II. So when we think about God's kingdom, Jesus' incarnation, his crucifixion, and his resurrection inaugurated the kingdom of God, but it's not fully consummated until he comes back. And so I want you to hear some stuff. Jesus uses this kingdom language 54 times in the Gospel of Matthew. That's a lot. That's more than twice per chapter. And so we're going to kind of zoom through this a little bit to see some things that I think Jesus, if, if Jesus was here talking about your 2017, and if you could have a one-on-one coaching session with him, I don't know that he's going to sit down and talk with you about your stock portfolio. You know, I don't know that he's going to talk with you about your time management. He might. He'll talk about your time management more than he talk about your stock portfolio. But I think these five things that make up his preaching in the Gospel of Matthew would indubitably be the kinds of things that he would challenge us through. So we're going to be all over the place in Matthew's gospel. I want to start by way of introduction with a couple things that he says that I think are very interesting. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we have Jesus' very first sermon. You can tell it's his first sermon because it was only one sentence. That's how it goes when it's your first sermon. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it says this, From then on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent! Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He begins his preaching with this declaration of the kingdom. It is not just a something that is not yet. It is a something that is now and is inaugurated <coughs> Excuse me, with his death and resurrection. Skip down just a few verses to chapter 4, verse 23. And we see not only how Jesus began his preaching ministry, but the way his entire preaching ministry was characterized. Chapter 4, verse 23 says, Jesus was uh, a present active participle. Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Matthew chapter 10, (coughs) verse 7 Jesus commissions the disciples to go out. The disciples don't do a whole lot besides accompany Jesus. 
They are kind of Jesus groupies following him along wherever he goes, but they're not doing a whole lot. Well, finally, when we get to Matthew chapter 10, he commissions the apostles to go out, and here's the instructions that he gives them. Matthew 10, verse 7. As you go, announce this, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Not only do we see that Jesus' first sermon dealt with the issue of the kingdom, not only did his entire preaching ministry be characterized as a preaching about the kingdom, but as he gives instructions to his followers to go, he tells them to talk about the kingdom. So here's the question for you this morning. As you review 2016 and think about 2017, what kind of kingdom citizen are you? What grade would you make? As we do an evaluation, as we get our report card, how are you doing? And so I think as we examine these five sermons, we'll see some priorities that Jesus says need to be priorities for us personally and corporately as a church. And we'll begin with perhaps what is the most famous sermon that Jesus has preached in Matthew chapters 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. He begins in the Sermon on the Mount uh, with these blessing statements. Blessed are those who do this, for this will be the result. They're called the Beatitudes. Um, we'll, we'll put that in a positive uh, kind of uh, command. These are the attitudes you should have. These are the Beatitudes. And the reason he gives us the Beatitudes is that you don't need any instruction on the be-not attitudes. You get the be-not attitudes easy. It's like, whoever taught their kid to say no? no? Nobody. It's natural. And so he has to give the be-attitudes because the be-not attitudes are so much a part of who we are. He goes on in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You'll see the, the words on the screen. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste... How can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine. To follow this. Let your light shine. Let your salt be salty before men so that they may see your good works. What is our saltiness and our lightedness? It is our actions. It's what we do. So that they may see your good works and pat you on the back. No, give glory to your Father in heaven. He's saying, guys, listen, whatever it is that, whatever flavor you are, communicates something about God. So if you are grumpy, that's what you're communicating about God, that he's grumpy. If you're joyful, Guess what? You're communicating that God is joyful. However you let your light shine, you let your salt flavor. He goes on and he talks uh, just a few verses down in uh, verses 21 and 22 and 27 through 28 about some really important things. How many of you have ever dealt with anger? Anybody dealt with anger? Anybody this morning? I see that hand. All right. Um, We'll get that working out. Listen to what he says. He says, "It's it's not enough to just not murder somebody. He goes, you have a problem if you've ever been angry with someone. He says, you've heard it said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Anyone who uses kind of just coarse language and says to his brother, you fool, will be subject to judgment, to the Sanhedrin. Whoever says, you moron, will be subject to hellfire. He says, it's not just enough to say, oh, here's the line, I got right up to it, but I didn't cross it, you idiot. I didn't kill him. 
oh, good job, not murdering somebody. He's saying the, the seed of murder is animosity that is hidden in the heart. It may not ever look like it on the outside, but the, 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 the flame of murder, the ember of murder, is anger at someone. You, you never murder someone that you just like. You know, you're mad at them, and then it, it's unrestrained, and it becomes a forest fire. And he goes on, he says, it's not just anger, it's lust. He says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And anybody who has grown up in church goes, well, duh. And he says, well, hold on. I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in her heart. And listen, that's not just a one gender issue either. You could substitute it and say women don't look at men, men don't look at women. It's a huge issue. So in the Sermon on the Mount, he continues and he he deals with the beatitudes, salt and light, anger and lust. In chapter 6, he says, hey guys, listen, if we're going to live right, one of the things that's important for you to know is to know how to pray. And so he gives a model prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer. In Matthew 6, 19 through 21, look at what he says. He says, don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, what's it say? There your heart will be also. That's where it's at. Don't lay up stuff here. Lay up stuff there. Matthew chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. Every parent's favorite verse in the Bible, because it is the golden rule. When you have multiple children, you want them to know. If you do this, they will do this. So do this so that they do this. You're trying to manipulate your kids to obey and be nice to each other and have this niceness competition. Here's what the scriptures say. Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, you do also uh, the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. And then he says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. There are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few are those who find it. It is easier to do to others what you want to do to others and still expect them to do for you what you want them to do for you. Many of you have probably read the Golden Rule and not understood that the narrow gate and the wide way comes right after that because it's really hard to do for others who are not doing unto you as you want to be done unto. And he just says, listen, everybody does it. And that doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it right. He concludes the Sermon on the Mount with one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and he talks about building on the rock, Matthew seven twenty four through 27. He says, Everyone who hears these words and acts on them will be like a wiser, sensible man who built his house on the rock. All these bad things happened. The rains fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, but it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine, so they're in church, but they don't act upon them, and be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew. Same thing happened to the foolish man as it did to the wise man. And it pounded the house and it collapsed and its collapse was very great. So here's the question. What is the point of everything on the Sermon on the Mount? Everything on the Sermon on the Mount is this. How we live matters. Like we think, you know, circle, circle, dot, dot, now I got my Jesus shot. I'm going to heaven. I got my ticket. It doesn't matter how I live. That is a lie from the pit of hell. How we live matters. Because if how we live didn't matter, then why in the world would Jesus say, hey, listen, it's not just enough to not commit adultery. Watch how you look at people. You look twice when that lady walks by you, you've sinned. And it's like you've committed adultery with her already in your heart. Maybe not physically, but emotionally, you've already done it. 
If how we live didn't matter, he wouldn't have to say, hey guys, be salt and be light. How we live matters. And so if we're going to be good kingdom citizens, kingdom people live right. Kingdom people live right. And here's what the challenge is. I am not capable of living right. I am capable of going astray. Easily. I don't need any help going astray. I need the Spirit to help me live right. And so while it's not possible for me naturally to do these things, I want to walk the narrow path. I want to, ha- to express my anger in a way that glorifies God. I want to let my light shine. So the question is, how are you doing with those things? The greatest tragedy of all is for Christians who know better to live contrary to what they know. A sin. And so what are ways that you need to adjust how you're living? When you take your life and you measure it according to God's word, and you see stuff that's kind of out of line with it, are you going to cut it away? Are you really going to believe the scriptures, or is it, just, is it really convenient when it agrees with you? Man, you don't really believe the Bible. You believe yourself. And you're going to make the Bible say what you want it to say so you don't have to change because you're wonderful. Just give you a few minutes. You'll tell everybody about it. But if you're going to bring your life into subjection to the word, where are you living that is out of line with God's scripture? That's what the entire Sermon on the Mount is about. Are you living in a way that glorifies God? In Matthew chapter 10, we come to his second sermon, which is his sermon on mission. And he says some really important things here. Uh, Chapter 10, verses 5 through 7. Uh, I'm not going to read it. Basically, he's gathering his disciples. They haven't done anything. And we read it earlier. He says, hey, as you go, tell them the kingdom of heaven is here. It's near. It's come close to you. He is commissioning the disciples to go and to do evangelism. Look with me at verses 10, uh, chapter 10. Verses 16 through 18. We'll skip some of those verses and move on here. Chapter 10, verses 16 through 18. Jesus is commissioning them to go. You're like, woo-woo, disciples finally going to do something. Get out there and take one for the team. Listen to what Jesus says. Look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves, because people will hand you over to Sanhedrins and flog you in their synagogues. Beware of them. You will even be brought before governors and kings because of me to bear witness to them and to the nations. What is he telling them? Go and get beat up for preaching the gospel. But when you get dragged before kings and governors, guess what you're doing? You're testifying to the truth of the gospel before the most influential people in society. He's not saying go get in trouble for getting in trouble's sake, but he's saying even though we are sheep among wolves. Think about this. Like, what missionary strategy sends sheep to wolves? Jesus kind of embodied that, didn't he? He was a sheep among wolves. We killed him. And it says that the disciple's not above his master. But he's saying that even when hardship happens, it's all in his plan. Maybe the reason you're getting persecuted is that you're the person that gets to give the testimony before the king or the governor. Happened to Paul, didn't it? stoned, shipwrecked, beat up, thrown in prison, all kinds of crazy stuff, and he gets to testify to the grace of God among the highest people that are there. <clears throat> we had an, a, an incident this week, uh, really kind of an interesting thing. A man in our church who's been very sick. And uh, um, 
we call things elective surgery. We try to make it sound nice, like you wanted this. Um, I don't know anybody who wants surgery. That's kind of masochistic. Um, who wants surgery? But there's a difference between elective surgery and emergency surgery. And, uh, you know, we tend to think when bad things happen, they're just all completely bad. Interesting thing that happens is a uh, guy that's kind of involved in the family uh, goes to church, has no clue what the gospel is. And I, I won't mention the church that he goes to in our area, but has been going there for a while. And uh, I had the chance to sit down with him and say, would you can, if you were filling out a census and had to mark your religious affiliation, what would you put? And he said, what are the options? I said, it's an open-ended question. He said, I don't know. I said, well, you're going to church. You've been going to church for a while. Yeah, 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 I've been going to church for a while. What is the gospel? I have no clue. I don't know. So we sit down at lunch, and I have the opportunity to say, this is what the gospel is. It's about sin. It's about Jesus. It's about you. How are you going to live? Are you going to be the king of your life? Is Jesus going to be the king of your life? He, he looked at me dumbfounded. He goes, I have never heard this message ever in my life, and I've gone to church for a long time. You know what God did? He, he used a man's massive heart attack to connect someone who was a believer with someone who was not a believer, who those two people never would have crossed paths if it wasn't for this heart attack. So guess what happens to the guy who's having a heart attack? I get a chance to go in and say, man, it's been a rough week, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I w- if I could skip this week, I would never go through this again. Well, let me tell you what I understand you're telling me what you're experiencing. Let me tell you what God was doing and part of the reason that you're in the hospital. What does that do to your suffering? Does it make it worth it? You willing to go in the hospital for something like that? If somebody that you care about begins to hear the gospel and gets the light, starts to come on for them, God is in charge. And he's saying that individually and corporately, we must be witnesses. If we're going to understand the point of the sermon on mission, it's this. Kingdom people go with the gospel. Whether it's to the supermarket, whether it's to your workplace, whether it's taking a stroll around your neighborhood in the evening. Kingdom people go with the gospel. So if you are, if you listen to the sermon on the mount and you go, I don't know in 2017 any way that I need to adjust because I'm living pretty right. But you can't answer question number two about how you are going with the gospel. Let me tell you that you are not living right if you are not going with the gospel. It doesn't mean you have to be an evangelist. It doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It means you just take it with you wherever you go. It'd be like a married man who goes to work and like he just leaves this at home. Because he just doesn't want to be identified as a married man. Ladies, you'd be all right with that, wouldn't you? And all God's ladies said, heck no. Why? Because there is no good reason, unless you're in a dangerous environment where you're going to like lose a finger, there's no good reason to not identify that you're a married person. You're off the market. And in the same way, we take, we take, I take my wife with me wherever I go, not physically. She's on my finger. She's in my heart. I don't want that to change. Why would we not take Jesus with us to work or to uh, Cherry Park or to whatever it is that you do? We go with the gospel. I think that's a very real challenge for us <clears throat> because there is no church in the world that is going with the gospel as fully and as faithfully as they could. So the question isn't just for you. 
The question is for us. How do we go with the gospel better in 2017 than we did in 2016? His third sermon is Matthew 13. And in Matthew 13, the entire chapter is a collection of parables all on the kingdom. And uh, it's crazy because like, it's like dirty hard work when he talks about the gospel. He begins by talking about the parable of the sower. And here's a guy who's going out and he's throwing the seed out, throwing the seed out, hoping that it's going to grow. But then he finds out, man, the birds came up and ate some of my seed. Man, I worked hard for that seed and I, I, I paid for that and I get no return for it. And then some of the seed falls on uh, the hard ground and nothing happens to it. It doesn't even have a chance to grow up. Some of it grows up really quickly, but then it withers away. And it's this picture of hard work, of farming. And farming is, farming is not easy. You may, have, you may have a knack for it. You may be a little more advanced. You may be a little more experienced. It's not easy work. And then he talks about the parable of the weeds, that this guy has planted all this wheat, and when it, the heads start to sprout up, all these weeds are there. And his servants come and go, man, didn't you plant wheat? And he goes, yeah, I did. This is the work of an enemy who has planted weeds in my field to try to kill my wheat. In addition to the toil of hard work, you have an enemy who is trying to make your work even more difficult. And then he tells the story of the mustard seed and the leaven that you just need a little bit and it can grow into this big, huge thing or just a little bit to infect the whole dough. But what I love is in Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 through 46, he brings all of these word pictures together in a fascinating way. He says this, the kingdom of heaven, our theme, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and he buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. Love this. Because definitely with the merchant, it gives the idea of someone who is searching for that perfect pearl. So he's been to countless marketplaces to find this one gem that is just exquisite. It's exactly what it needs to be. And when he finds it, he's so overcome with joy at having found this thing that he's been looking for forever that he sells everything he has to buy it. We hear the story about the man walking through the field and we think like, you know, it's like Gomer Pyle kind of traipsing along and he trips over a treasure chest. You know, I, I don't think that's the case at all. Because what do you do with your treasure chest? You bury it because they didn't have banks. This was your nest egg. And it could have been that somebody uh, from generations ago who owned the field buried it and forgot to tell his family. And the guy knows, man, how did he find it? I don't know. I think he was searching. Some of you uh, know David Dimitrik. Some of you may not know that he has a metal detector. And so he loves to just kind of walk around. He'll go to the beach, not to enjoy the sunrise or the sunset, but to walk around and find all the treasure that people have left in the sand. And he will walk around for hours and hours and hours. And then it starts to beep, and all he's found is a lousy nickel. Then he goes down to Chester, and he goes around with his little metal detector. Guess what he finds? A cannonball from the Confederate War. Ah, that's treasure. A nickel. Throw it back, let a kid get it, you'll make their day. You know, but he's searching. And he finds something, and then he's like, man, check out my doorstop. It's a Confederate cannonball. What you got? You know, you're like, all right, Mr. Awesome Doorstop Guy. That's incredible. Um, But the point is that they're searching, and it's hard work, but it's joyful. Here's the deal. Whatever it is that you grow, 
Do you make the wheat grow? No. The power for the growth is in the seed. All you're doing is setting the circumstances for it to flourish. You're tilling the ground. You're not playing it too deep, not too shallow. You're watering it, making sure that it gets sun. But you don't actually cause the growth. The growth is a mystery. The farmer can do everything right, and it doesn't grow. It's hard work, but kingdom people engage in a work that is hard, but joyful. We get to share in the harvest and like the guy that's found the treasure of the perfect pearl, it is awesome. It is worth whatever sacrifice we need to make. So kingdom people engage in a hard but joyful work. This morning, right now, we have people over there working in the nursery. And there are some people, they're going to be really mad because there is some kid with irritable bowel syndrome that is just, nobody wants to take care of him, and you get stuck with him. Well, let me tell you about the kid I watched today. Man, listen, if that, if you do your hard work with a hard attitude, just stop. God doesn't need it. It's not doing you any good. It's not doing anybody else any good. <clears throat> Another story that I think is just fascinating. We had, um, I guess last week we got rid of all the poinsettias. We had a bunch of poinsettias up here. And so our deacons were going around to some of our homebound folks and distributing those poinsettias. Well, we have a deacon. He's older man, not old, older, and um, went to visit a homebound person that kind of knew the name but didn't know the face. And uh, when he had the chance to visit with her, she knew who he was really well because she powdered his tush in the nursery, you know, however long ago, and took care of him when he couldn't care for himself. And now she's homebound, and this is her deacon bringing a poinsettia and caring for her. Sometimes it's hard work. But isn't it beautiful to see how things come full circle and God rewards you for doing the stuff that maybe isn't really glamorous, but it's good. And that's what kingdom work is about. Is we get so busy with stuff, and like when we, when we really stop to think about the reward for our labor, it's, it's pennies. Sometimes the things that don't contribute to your 401k at all are sometimes the most blessed things that you can be a part of. How are you working how are you serving? And are you finding your joy in doing what God wants you to do? Jesus' fourth sermon is in Matthew uh, chapters 18 through 20. We're just going to look at one quick passage uh, here. But he begins uh, in, in, in talking about the church. The only time he uses the word uh, for church, ecclesia, is in Matthew chapter 18. And Matthew 18 starts off by Peter going, Jesus, I just got to know, am I going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Because like, I'm Peter. Who's going to be the greatest? Well, everybody kind of wants to get in on the action. Hey, well, I've done this. I've done this. I, I, I attended faithfully more. You know, I didn't run away at this point. I, I tithe more. I do this. And Jesus goes, really? You guys want to know who's going to be best? Who's going to get the perfect attendance pin? Who's going to get the cumulative gift of the year award? Who's going to get what? And he says, anybody got a kid? All right, let's bring the kid up here. All right, you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? You need to be like this kid. Humble. Not pretentious. Not trying to earn something. Just enjoying life. And then he goes on, and he, he, he's talking about combating pride with humility. And then he says something that every single one of us needs to hear. And we need to hear it now when things are good, because you won't want to hear it when things are bad. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. When Jesus talks about the church, these are the kinds of relationships that he talks about. If your brother sins against you, 
Go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he pays no attention to them, then tell it to the church. And if he doesn't even pay attention to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. He says that in the church, when we see somebody wanting to put their hand on the stove of sin, we try to stop them before they get too stupid. I mean, you do this with your kids. I mean, nobody would sit there and go, well, this will be a great object lesson. Let's see, you know, how, how, how long he can keep his hand on the stove. Yet, when we get to be big kids and we see people messing up their life and dishonoring God and mocking the sacrifice of Christ, we sit back and go, well, you know, they're an adult. I can't tell them anything. How much do you have to hate somebody to not try to point them right? And so the question is, do you, have you given people in your life the authority to correct you? Now, nobody likes to be corrected. There are a slight few of you that we need to pray for that like to do correcting. Um, I didn't ask that question. How many of you like to be corrected? No. How many of you need it? I do. We all do. Have you made it easy for people who love you? Because it is not comfortable. If you have ever been in the process of correcting someone who's not your own kid, it's challenging. It is not fun. It's not pleasant. Nobody desires it. But it is good and it is right. And then Jesus goes on to say what the end result of this is. He tells this story about a guy that owes, owes this huge debt. And he goes to the king and he begs the king, King, I, I have no way to pay this off. It's millions of dollars. I just throw myself at your mercy. And the king says, you know what? I'm going to forgive you this debt. A couple days later, he finds this guy and the guy is beating the mess out of a guy that owes him 50 bucks. The king goes, wait a second, wait a second. Didn't you beg me for mercy and you've not given mercy to someone else? We have to be serious enough to confront but we have to understand that the purpose of confrontation is so that we get people back in line with what God wants. And God's word is clear enough about what we're supposed to do. So the point is this. Kingdom people deny themselves for the benefit of others. <clears throat> you get really messed up and you're doing stuff that you know is wrong. And I come and I say something to you. It, it is not going to help our friendship if you are in the flesh. You may not come back to the church. So price to pay. Is it the right thing to do? Yes. Is it for the benefit of others? Yes. Because when you're in sin, you're not thinking right. You're thinking of ways to justify things. And so we have to deny ourselves because there is nothing in ourselves that wants to be involved in other people's lives in that way. We have to deny ourselves for the benefit of others. <clears throat> so how are you either at going or receiving that kind of accountability? Last sermon, Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus' sermon on the end of the world. <clears throat> he says a number of things here. We're just going to look at a couple verses very quickly. In verses 5 through 7 of Matthew 24, he says this. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they'll deceive many. You are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, because these things must take place. But the end is not yet, for nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are, <clears throat> all these things are events at the beginning of the birth pains. 9 through 14. He says, Then they'll hand you over for persecution. They will kill you. 
You'll be hated by all nations because of my name. Some will take offense. They'll betray one another, hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will multiply, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be delivered. This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Chapter 24, verse 36. Now concerning that day, when all this stuff happens, concerning that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Verses 42 through 44. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known at what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you also must be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What's the point? Kingdom people faithfully prepare for a difficult and uncertain future. What's going to happen in 2017? For some people, January 20th, the Trumpocalypse. Statistics are... There's going to be a number of people that are either in this worship service or the, early, next, or the earlier worship service that won't be here to celebrate 2018. That's a sobering thought. I don't like to think about that. There might be a big date in the future, graduation, marriage, birth of a first child, but there is so much more that you don't know what is going to happen. Not a clue. You don't know what's going to happen next week. You think you do. Kingdom people faithfully prepare for a future that is uncertain to them, but certain for God. I joked about Y2K, 50 gallons of water in my basement, five years to drink it. I would much rather have had the water and not needed it than needed the water and not had it. And the Bible says that people who are kingdom-minded prepare. That means they're living right. They're witnessing right. They're ready. They keep short accounts. They're ready for hardship. They're ready for persecution. They're ready to live. They're ready to witness. And just for a second, look at these five things that Jesus covers in these five major sermons. Living out the gospel in our behavior, how we live, our ethics matters. Going with the gospel in our witness, Matthew chapter 10. Going out, giving verbal witness to uh, what God has done in Christ. Number three, joyfully working for the expansion of God's kingdom. Not just simply earning a paycheck, but working for the expansion of God's kingdom. Number four, denying self to encourage others to live out the gospel. You've actually helped somebody by intervening in their life when they're not living the way that they need to. Number five, being prepared for a faithful witness amidst increasing persecution. Listen, I would love it if you lost five pounds this year. I suppose that that would be a really good thing. But how trivial is that when we look at living out the gospel, being gospel witnesses, expanding God's kingdom, caring enough for people that we help them to live out the gospel, witnessing faithfully in the midst of persecution. Call me crazy, because I don't know every single one of you and how God's word applies to you specifically. But I think that every single one of us can find something here that for the glory of God, you, we, need to work on for 2017. So don't waste your resolutions. Don't 
waste the start of a new year. Think about it. Because God has made you. If you are a believer, he has redeemed you. He has favored and blessed and showered you with all kinds of provision. And you don't want to live better for him this year than you did last year? That's got to be the most ungrateful thing that I've ever heard. And I know that's not what you want. But if you don't put something down, you won't be any further ahead at the end of this year than you were in 2016. And I don't think that that's faithful. I don't. I want to know Christ more. And whether that comes through suffering or whether that comes through blessing, bring it on, because I don't care about the circumstances. I care about the goal. And I hope that you do too. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we thank you for the great grace that you have shown us. You have shown us great forbearance. You have put up with a lazy and fickle people like us. And while we love you, and we are glad to exclaim it, and we are so grateful for your love for us, we do not love you as much as we say that we do. We are so easily distracted. We lose focus. We're kind of like kids, just kind of getting into trouble with stuff. We thank you that you promise that you will never leave us and forsake us, that you will be faithful to complete the work that you have started in us, Father, give us the Holy Spirit sensitivity to be aware of how you're at work around us and in us and allow us to apply all of our zeal and our energy to glorifying you with how we live, how we witness, and even how we suffer in 2017. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.